morning, reading from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard, heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After that, they heard the king. They went on their way, and the star that had been in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures, presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You may be seated. I've had the um, incredible blessing of having the opportunity to frequent Israel on numerous occasions. I don't actually know how many. It doesn't matter. Um, What a joy that is. Um, it's far more than a tour, it's a pilgrimage. And uh, I'm acquainted with the sites, as I know some of you are, but it's not the sites anymore the being the reason you go. The reason you go is to see other people enjoy it for the first time. And our recent trip was no exception. But there's something that happens in each of these trips that's undeniable. You, We start in Caesarea by the sea. It's a port town not far from Jaffa. And uh, not far from Tel Aviv either. And it's a town that was built by King Herod. Herod the Great, they called him. And we're first introduced to Herod the Great at that first stop. A man who actually built a town and pushed back the waters of the Mediterranean to actually make it happen. At a hippodrome and a prison. Paul was in prison there for two years. A theater. And uh, it's good that you start there when you're beginning to sequence these sites because King Herod the Great will come up time and time and time again throughout the trip. You might as well get introduced to him early on. So I've been intrigued by this figure. Uh, This video just called him psychotic. Yes, at at one point in his life, near the end, he does get that way. But I've been intrigued by him and wanted to study him for a while learn more about his life and why he was the way that he was. And I'm equally as intrigued by the Magi. However many they were, I don't know. I don't guess any of us know. But what we do know is if we really want to know a lot about what happens behind the scenes of the Bible, we thank Flavius Josephus for that. He wrote a book entitled Antiquities. And in Antiquities, you get the lowdown on the history of the Jews in the context of the Roman oppression. So I thought today it might be interesting to focus on the birth of Christ, but more than that, be mindful and aware of what is happening around the birth of Christ and how it represents all of humanity back then and now. There's nothing really new under the sun when it comes to people living on this earth in a fallen world For the most part, they wrestle with the same reoccurring themes of pain, of sickness, of illness, of of anxiety, a lack of peace. And you say all of this, Jesus came in Bethlehem to these words, glory to God on the highest and on earth, goodwill toward men. We're, We're looking for a savior, ironically enough, that is going to be prophetically birthed, given birth in Bethlehem by the prophetic by Micah, the prophet. And we're going to look at everything that happens around him is the absence of peace. There is a gross absence of peace around the birth 
of the one who came to provide us peace. And perhaps we'll see a little bit of ourselves in each of these figures that I bring up today. Perhaps we won't. Perhaps we'll better understand others. But what I can tell you is, there is a representation of humanity distinctly mentioned around the birth of Christ and how each of those figures react to that birth is worth exploring, at least in my opinion. The first thing you have to notice about the context is that Jesus was born during the Roman Empire, obviously. He's born among an oppressed and highly taxed people who are searching for their own identity and hoping to hold on to it, who are uh, degraded, shamed, overworked, and certainly overtaxed. And in the middle of all of that, they await a savior from heaven and they really don't know what he's going to do, whether or not he's going to revamp the entire government and become a nation state and get, a, get all kind of laws and things passed and, or if he's gonna be like he actually came to be, something totally different. So the Roman Empire and its oppressiveness and its restrictiveness, um, all really Rome wanted was peace. This is the, this is the uh, irony of it. Rome wanted peace so they would take procurators and governors and kings and they would appoint them throughout the empire whose job it was to bring about peace. Herod was one of those figures, he was a king. Now, the ironic thing about him is he wanted peace but he had none. His job was to keep it but he had none. Maybe, maybe you feel that way sometimes. You, you come to a, to a God who's supposed to be the prince of peace but yet, if you really thought about it, why did you come to him to begin with? It's probably because you lacked peace yourself. We all have a hole in us that need, can only be satisfied for the one who really came to give it to us. And what is that? Peace. Peace. This world is longing for peace. Jerusalem, which means city of peace, has been overtaken 39 times in history. It, it is by far a city without peace, a city with conflict. So let's briefly look at a psychological profile of King Herod. This will be interesting. He had a friendship with Mark Antony. For those of you who took uh, Western literature and think about it, Mark Antony, who was kind of sweet on Cleopatra, got into a dispute with Octavius, and out of that conflict, Octavius won. Herod lost land that he owned because of Cleopatra. And to be a smart guy, he actually confessed that to Octavius, got his land back and got power. He went into power. So now here's this man who's now in power, whose job it is to actually keep peace. And he is probably one of the master builders of all time. One of the greatest general contractors you've ever seen. He's built uh, entire cities, he's built fortresses, he built Fort, Fortress Antonio next to the temple. He helped build the second temple. This guy has done it all. He's mobilized people and resources and, and exercised uh, craftedness and, and, and serious building skill uh, to this day. People are impressed with him. He even built aqueducts to transport water. He's an incredibly accomplished man. But here's the thing about him. Slowly but surely as his life went on, and this happens on a daily basis today, the reality in which he lived became too challenging for him to live in it. This happens quite frequently today. If the reality in which we live is too difficult as we know it, based on our past, our present, or what we perceive the future to be, oftentimes, we create a different reality. Usually the genesis of that creation of a different reality or the, the leaving of a reality through self-medication or whatever, usually that takes place from people who have issues with, ongoing struggles with anxiety. And Herod was one of those guys. He had issues with anxiety. Not knowing how to navigate those waters, 
He made very poor decisions and later in his life became an incredibly wicked man. So Herod is a representation around the birth of Christ of how to deal with or how not to deal with anxiety. Rome, around certainly the macro sense around the birth of Christ, is, is, a, is a picture of how to deal with oppression of other peoples. Herod. He had a huge family. Uh, he got divorced to his first wife and married his second. Her name was Miriam. Had a number of children by her. He loved her deeply. To tell you how much he loved her, he loved her to death. Literally loved her to death. He killed her. Killed his firstborn. Killed her mother, his mother-in-law. Killed her grandfather, her brother. He had eight other wives. I don't know what they were thinking. But this is a man whose anxiety brought him to the point of drastic steps taken to preserve his own self-worth, his own safety, his own life, his own dream at the expense of others, literally their lives. He was a narcissist. He was enamored by his own resources, his own status, his own power, his own control, his own position. And he became the most important person in his entire life. And at the expense of those he actually loved, he did away with them. He probably had, you might think you have a dysfunctional family. This guy had the single most dysfunctional family in the history of families. At any cost, he would preserve his own well-being. Later in his life, he had arteriosclerosis, had a venereal disease that affected the quality of his mind and his thinking, and he had a paranoia that had been so developed, uh, he at various times almost took his own life. It eventually led to the slaughter of the innocents that we know to be the annihilation of everyone under age two in the area of Bethlehem. And Jesus had escaped to Egypt as a means of avoiding that horrible, horrible scene. He was threatened by a babe in a manger, the very one who came to save him. Let me stop there. He was threatened by a baby. The very baby who came to save him. He hadn't even had a chance or an opportunity to see the baby grow and offend him so that he could disagree with the baby, so that he could have reasons to annihilate the baby. He was afraid of a baby. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, at Christmas time, what have you against a baby? One who came prophetically at the exact time, in the exact space, in the exact manner and lived a life and carried out a ministry in the fulfillment of nearly 200 plus messianic prophecies in one life. Never did anything to hurt anyone. And Herod, as twisted as he was in his own mind, was afraid of a baby. You have no reason today to be fearful of, to be intimidated by, to be, to be threatened by Jesus Christ. None. His, his whole demeanor is one of inclusivity. His whole life reeks of inclusivity. He went to the worst of society, the least among society, and met them where they were and included them and gave them invitations into the kingdom of God time and time and time again. Yet this man, with his anxiety was threatened by that little baby. It's amazing to me. Let's talk about anxiety for a second, as long as we're picking on him. Have you ever noticed that human beings have a tendency, some of us at times, some of us more than others, wait for it now, to overthink things? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Do you overthink things? My guess is Herod started out overthinking things. <laughs> I 
See, I don't, I'm not saying you're gonna end up where he, where he did, but you know, hey. We overthink things, okay? And when we overthink things, we have unnecessary thoughts. See, when you overthink, not every thought is necessary. Not every thought is needed. Not every thought is appropriate. You might just overthink things and have an abundance of thoughts you really didn't need to have. They're not gonna help you at all. They're just adding to the problem. This is what Herod started out with. He overthought things, and then he ended up with a surplus of thoughts, not all of which were necessary. In fact, they were incredibly unnecessary. It creates... Guess what unnecessary thoughts create? An abundance of volume of thoughts create something we don't necessarily want in our life. Non-existent problems. If you overthink, start to collect unnecessary thoughts like baseball cards, you'll end up with non-existent problems. Problems that were manufactured by your thoughts that aren't even in tune with reality that you don't need, okay? That was his problem. Unnecessary unhappiness as a result. Sometimes we human beings get to where we have negative, destructive mind activity. You with me? You know anybody like this? Who's coming over to your house for Thanksgiving? So-and-so and my family. What are they gonna talk about? Well, they're gonna talk about their green jello mold. When they get done with that, they're gonna go on a rant. It's gonna last about 45 minutes. It's gonna be all negative. How do you know that? Because for seven straight Thanksgivings, they've been on the same rant. We've got an unnecessary abundance of negative thoughts that have become a part of who the person is. That's Herod. That's like Herod's coming over for Thanksgiving. He has manufactured problems out of the abundance of unnecessary thoughts. He has not the mind of Christ. We all have this going on, okay? You know this and I know this. If you actually, I don't know how to say this. If you stood back and listened to your thoughts, would it not scare you sometimes? There's a commentary going on in your head about your life, this, your problem, how you're gonna overcome that, who did, he said that, I can't believe he said that, I was offended by that. This is going nowhere, I'm bumping in the middle of the night, I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that. It's I this and this, but if those thoughts in your head get so frequent, so rehearsed, so common, so commonplace, they can actually no longer be quiet thoughts, you can actually say them out loud. Now what happens when you say those same thoughts out loud and walk down the street? People think you're insane. But it just is interesting to me anyway that the very same thoughts that someone's repeating verbally as they walk down the sidewalk by themselves are the very same thoughts that are going through his head. And we have the same thoughts. That's kind of creepy. What are we doing? We are, when we are most anxious, we are creating scenarios that haven't even happened yet. We're now having to deal with issues that aren't even real. We're now looking into a future that hasn't had the, the luxury of actually developing. We've fast forward ourselves into a future that doesn't even exist because we worry. Jesus says, who are you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? It's true. But when they become audible, now we're ready for the institution. At least we think so. After a while, it becomes hard to distinguish reality from people's thoughts. And guess what? Our body has to react to it. Our body and our mind and our souls are interconnected as we're being sanctified by Christ. Our body can't just let these thoughts go unchecked and not respond to them. And this is why people get sick. One reason. This is why stress causes us a lot of problems physically. This is why we get fatigued. This is why we get run down. This is why our, our immune system is, is not what it should be. Medical science today will validate the fact that how we think will affect how we feel, not only emotionally, but physically. If you take a look at the whole person, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, you see that there's an interconnection between these three parts of every man and every woman. There's an interplay between them. There's a relationship. We know this. 
Medical science will give us a specialist for every organ of our body. What are you doing? I'm going to a specialist. What's it for? For my liver. I'm going to another one for my kidney. Then I got one for the heart. Then I got one for this, one for that, one for this, for this. No one ever talks to one another. No one ever asks the question, what in the world are you thinking? Because we're not holistic enough to, to understand the impact that what anxiety and fear, fear actually becomes internalized. And now we got physical problems and we're asking ourselves, well, gee, I wonder why. Well, it could it be because your mind's racing and you're anxious and you're afraid. And this is where Herod, bless his heart, begins to realize, I can't live like this. I'm gonna create a different reality. I'm gonna create a reality in which I define what life really is all about and I control what happens around me and I am in charge, not life, not the world, not circumstances, not scenarios, and certainly not a babe in a manger. We end up in real trouble if we don't check those. We, he, we, he even connives and tries to, to put some sort of conspiracy theory together for these people that, hey, listen, you gotta really let me know about that baby because I'm gonna go and worship that baby. That baby is good, really worthy of worship. He's, he's so deceptive. He's trying to figure out what I'm gonna do here. About a nine pound baby boy. But then again, not all self-talk is negative. But our self-talk, if, if we're in trouble, especially if we're not considering and using the word of God the way that we should, if we're not worshiping the way that we really called to worship, then we leave ourselves vulnerable in these areas and our mind just takes off. I've seen it in our community. Um, a situation where a mind got to racing so fast, so long, so consistent that it created a whole nother reality. I'm sitting in my office at eight o'clock at night trying to explain, can somebody please do something here in this family instead of enabling this person to just go on and on and on and further and further and further away from reality. So Herod's obsessions and his overstated small events became a real cluttered mind. Paul, you'll read in the New Testament, talks about having a clear conscience. Clear conscience. What is that? That's the absence of cluttered-mindedness. To, to, to have a mind that's not overly impacted by obsessions and compulsions and fear and anxiety and a lack of peace. And typically, a cluttered mind will focus most on oneself at the expense of everyone else around. So to have an uncluttered mind is one of the reasons Christ came, but yet Herod, bless his heart, it's more and more cluttered. He has no clear conscience. Galatians 5 and 1 is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, how do you get out of this cycle? Well, he never had a chance. It's not, it's not until you become aware of the fact that you're actually racing with your thoughts and anxious that you can actually receive any help to do anything about it because the thoughts themselves take your life over in such a way you can't penetrate it. When Jesus ministers to people, sometimes he'll read their thoughts and he'll give their thoughts back to them. This is fascinating. Why would he do that? Well, the first reason he would do it is to make them aware of the fact that, man, gee whiz, like what's going on up there? This is too much. It's too much to process, too much to deal with. You know, it's affecting you the way you live, the way, the way you feel. It's affecting your diet. It's affecting everything in your life. This, is, this Herod thing is not good. And Jesus will check somebody up. And he'll say, uh, he does this in Luke 5 and 22 to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He goes, knowing their thoughts, he said. See, Jesus will get inside your head and interrupt the process of the rapid thought process, wanting people to have a clear conscience. In Romans 12 and two, it says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That is the pattern of this world. Rapid thought, lack of attentiveness, a lack of quality, a presence of quantity. One is good, two is better, three is the ideal. 
Think, 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 overthink, think, think, think. Make everything that you do about what goes on in your head and not what actually happens in everyday life. You can actually convince yourself you're, you're so much worse than you actually are or so much better than you actually are. Jesus came to, gave us, to give us a mind that is steadfast, who's focused on him that leads to perfect peace. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding, mind, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Herod was a mess. He became his own Christ. He was a murderer, but it started with a lack of stewardship, of understanding how to calm the human mind. We'll get to that in a moment. It left him deceptive, violent, deeply jealous and insecure. If you think about your days before Christ, these are the words you probably can use to somehow better describe how you actually were outside of Christ. Insecure and jealous are one of them. Deep, Seated jealousy is deep-seated insecurity, a lack of confidence, presence of shame. I don't think sometimes we realize, I know we talk about the forgiveness of sins, how important is that? Incredibly important. But I don't think we realize that we realize we think differently than we used to. We discern things different than we used to. We analyze things different than we used to. We process things. We use wisdom. We use clarity. We use truth to filter what comes in the world. And, and Paul says to the, to, the, to the believers in Rome, he says, you can't conform to that world anymore. Listen, if the world is informing you how to think, you're, you got it reversed. If you're living from the outside in, you've got it reversed. The mind is the battlefield here. If the world is telling you what to think and how to think and how often to think, you're getting in a wrong place. You have to process, you have to slow down, you have to discern. The Magi discerned by way of a dream. They knew something was wrong in the way that this guy said he wanted to come worship a baby. They discerned that. And that's what makes the Magi the antithesis of Herod. They didn't have his power, they didn't have his notoriety, they didn't have his riches, they didn't have his status, but they had something, and they used that something to process the fact that this guy was off base. One of the most prevalent things about a Christian in this century should be the ability to discern and call out and discern spirits and discern truth or the lack thereof. That is one of the things that must be cultivated in a 21st century Christian is the ability to discern between truth and fiction. If you can't, if you can't do that now, if I can't help you do that, if I can't do that now, do you understand how much trouble the church is in with the falsehood and deception and the false miracles and the things coming in the future are gonna be so prevalent? We're gonna be like gathering up chickens one at a time, not gonna happen. You have to develop this control of one's mind, one's heart, and it has to be guarded. We end up like this. Now, who are these magi? What are they all about? Well, they represent, around the birth of Christ, probably one of the most noble and needed qualities in a believer. And we've touched on it here today. These people traveled 900 miles. 900 miles. To see a baby. They wanted something they didn't have. They went after someone they had never seen before. They were seeking. It was their mission, it was their life, it was their identity. I've, we've got to find out who this is. I'll tell you what's dangerous today. If a general sort of uh, malaise falls over you or the church where we're comfortable, you know, I know Jesus, I know who he is, we'll learn something else. Seek out something else. 
Look for more depth. He has that available to you and to me. Seek understanding, seek wisdom, seek clarity, seek how to be a better leader, how to be a better father, a better husband, a better mother, grandmother. Seek out something of him in his word and in a relationship with him that's fresh. When we don't do that, we, ne- we immediately negate the purpose of his ongoing friendship with us. A continued revelation of all the things that we need to impact this world with him. If we all cease to do that and kind of get comfortable, and you know, I'm kind of good where I'm at, then we end up being ill-equipped for what lies ahead. Multiply that times billions of people and you have an ill-equipped church. Times are changing, things are changing, values are changing, definitions are changing, sin is becoming nothing, uh, the word's changing, the law's changing, doctrine's changing. If we're not changing, if we're not changing, if we're not adapting, we're not relevant. We don't know how to speak to people whose minds race at a million miles an hour and create realities they can deal with because the one that they live in wasn't good enough or something happened to them and they can't overcome it. We have to be able to adapt and have a clear conscience and a clear mind. Those of you who teach the word, listen, don't teach up what you heard before. Don't rapid fire back what someone taught you. We have a responsibility as a teacher to go deeper, to seek something out you never heard before, to test it, to confirm it, to ask the Lord about it. We need to offer up fresh bread, fresh bread, not stale bread, fresh bread. Fresh, fresh, right out of the oven. Well, these people were Persians, which was the biggest empire at one time under the leadership of Cyrus, who emancipated the Jews out of, Israelites out of Babylon. Well, you're talking about a pretty big area. Babylon, modern day Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. There's a lot of people there. That whole area of the world today was represented by these magi who traveled that far as scientists and astronomers, as learned people trained in philosophy to try to figure out who this baby was. Nobody travels that far to see a baby without God bringing them. And it's the same today. It is the very same today. Those people in Iran right now, under the government that they're under, are getting so ripped off as Islamic extremism increases, as legalism increases among the younger generations of Iranians, they're coming to the understanding that Islam is not true. And the more that they do, the more the governments hold them down, restrict them more until the day is coming in the near future. I don't know how long, but it's all gonna blow up. And there's gonna be magi after magi after magi after magi after magi of people who have been oppressed, like the Roman Empire, if not worse, wanting to receive Christ. And that's what extremism does. It opens the door of Jesus Christ to reunite himself with the magi, the Persians of the world, who are now imprisoned, whipped, beaten, hung, and many other unthinkable things that are going on, even as I speak, the Magi. I want to know how I can be more like the Magi in terms of seeking, seeking out and discerning what is right and what is wrong. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they inquired of King Herod, who is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, there it is, isn't it? This isn't, this isn't some college. This isn't a seminary. We're not here to inform. I'm not here to inform you of more information about Jesus. I guess in some way I am. But to what end? Our increase in knowledge, our increase in understanding, and our increase of discernment and wisdom has to lead us to worship. These guys were smart cookies. They knew what was going on. They studied a lot of things. They had that figured out. But what did they need to do? They needed to worship. They had yet to find anybody to worship. They had yet to find a God worthy of worship. This is a sobering thought. I'll go ahead and put it out there. 
There are men and women in Persian prisons today or in house churches leading groups of believers and discipling them in the scripture who can't sing. If they did, they'd have to do it at such a low volume that no one could hear them. Do you know what's gonna happen when the day comes when they don't have to go 16 miles out of town to stand on the mountain to worship at the top of their voices? Is it possible we've so taken for granted the freedom that we have to sing at the top of our lungs and shout unto the Lord with a voice of triumph that we're not taking advantage of that and they're restricted, they can't even do it. They would want what we have more than anything else in the world, more than, more than anything, more than money, more than food. They'd wanna worship at the top of their lungs, but they can't. And we have the freedom to worship at the top of our lungs all day, every day, and we don't. It's crazy. The resources are least where the need is greatest and the resources are greatest where the need is least. That's the Persians. But somehow, somebody exposed them to scripture because they read Micah 5 and 2 and that's what got them to Bethlehem. Who else is around that little baby? The Roman Empire, the psychotic King Herod, the seeking Magi, and Mary and Joseph, a teenage girl representing the future generations, future promise, future direction, enamored with the fact that she just gave birth to a child that is the savior of the world. Ecstatic, bewildered, confused, wondering. I'll take that. I'll take the seeking of the Magi and the total mind-blowing bewilderment of Mary and Joseph. I'll take that. I want that. I want that at this next chapter of my walk. Do you? That blown awayness of, of being in relationship to Christ, the, the, the absolute splendor of it all, the excitement. Sometimes you've seen a person when they first come to Christ, they're obnoxious. And they cuss. I asked a guy to give a testimony one time, and I, about halfway through, I go, Ooh. I was like, whoa. He said, man, that guy's excited. It's also about an hour and a half out of the old kingdom. Mary and Joseph. Where are the younger generations of our country headed at present? Then there's Satan. He's always lurking about in the shadows. What's his story? On one hand, he's saying, what threat could a baby be? But in the back of his mind, he knows. He's sunk. He's already doomed. He'll have to weave a lie. He'll have to figure out some sort of way to slaughter him, get him included in the mix. Didn't work. What about the shepherds? What do they do? They're one rung above the lowest on the ladder of social respect. There's, a Bedouin shepherd is just one small rung above leper. <laughs> they, they smell and they don't know much. Nobody gives them any respect. They have their job and it's great if they just stay outside of town, kind of like a leper. And isn't it interesting? They're the first ones summoned with the news. They're the first one to find, to impart to them the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. The angels, they're always around. What are they doing? What are the broadcasters of beauty? And what are they broadcasting? Forgiveness of sins? No, peace. They know that the number one most relevant thing people need in this particular environment is peace. That's their gospel, the gospel of peace to start with. They'll get to sin and redemption and dying on a cross later. They know that the culture they're called to reach is as anxious and has more angst and more trepidation and more fear than anyone. No one knows what's gonna happen next, whether it's the economy, the social laws, the execution, the crucifixions, the, the biases, whatever it is, they don't know what's gonna happen next. They know that people want one thing more than anything else, peace. Peace. Do you have peace today? And suddenly there was an angel and a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest 
and on earth, peace. Goodwill toward men. What do the people of Ukraine want this morning? They want their houses back first? They want their jobs back first? They want the future back first? No, they want their children back. They want their lights on? No, not as much as they want one thing. Peace. Peace. We just want peace. And then there's the Christ. Why did he show up? Because he's the only one mindful of the shepherds, the Bedouins. He's the only one mindful of Herod, Herod's family, the angels. He's the only one who knows really what Satan's up to. And he's allowing himself to be as vulnerable as possible in the hands of a young girl who probably should be in high school. A television interviewer was walking the streets of Tokyo at Christmas time. Much as in America, Christmas shopping is a big commercial success in Japan. The interviewer stopped one young woman on the sidewalk and asked, what's the meaning of Christmas? Laughing, she responded, I don't know. Is that the day that Jesus died? Actually, he said and thought to himself, there's at least some truth in her answer. Joshua 1, 8 and 9. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Just an observation, I see people pursuing many, many, many things in this world. I see people in the church pursuing many, many, many things. Be careful that your pursuit, be careful that your ravenous pursuit isn't more ravenous ravenous and time-consuming than your pursuit of the Scripture in Christ. Take a look at the amount of time you spend. Observe how much time people spend gathering facts and information about living in this world. And hold that up to the amount of time, amount of effort, those very same people seek out Christ like the Magi. How many would walk 900 miles to meet with him? I don't know. I don't know. We live in an interesting time. And we must, as our worship leaders come, we must learn to meditate. It's almost like reading isn't good enough anymore. It's almost like we need a weapon that's more powerful, more prevalent, more purposeful than the the onslaught of information that comes to us and we allow to come to us out, out, out there in the world. We need a weapon that's more potent than that to balance out all that is sort of true, not true, false, lies, ridiculous. But what is that weapon? And sometimes I think we've come to this point where we read the scripture, read some words off a page, and we think that that's the weapon that's gonna counteract this onslaught we have coming our way. And I'm starting to realize, as wonderful as reading the scripture is, it's not the weapon of choice. The weapon of choice is prayer in the blood of Christ and meditating on the word. You have to spend time pressing into less scripture at a higher, more potent and deep quality level to counteract what you've allowed to come into your life and allowed to come into your kids' lives 
that originates in the anxiety of Herod, who runs this world. There's far too much deception and confusion, too many people out of sorts. There's too much mass killing, mass murders. There's too much bickering. There's too much dichotomy. And we're, we're satisfying ourselves with a, maybe a five-minute devotion, somehow thinking that we're balancing this thing out some kind of way. Well, I'll be the first to tell you, go deep. Take what you read and internalize it. Ask God to impart something in you that is stronger than the pressure that you're allowing to come into your life from the outside. Our spiritual pounds per square inch on the inside has to exceed the pressure we allow ourselves to be in on the outside. Until we're disciplined enough to cut off half the sources that are totally bogus anyway and build ourselves up in our faith, you're not, be the, you're not going to be the hammer. You're going to be the nail. And we get enough nails, we're going to have a problem because we're being more influenced by the world than us influencing the world. We're sounding more like the world and the world's having a field day with it. You are a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You have the wherewithal, the time to invest in his word and to bury it deep in your heart and to write it on the tablet of your heart, not to bounce off your forehead and think we're doing something. As the intensity of the onslaught of this world ramps up, strategically ramps up and, and, and is an onslaught against the church, somebody, somebody better raise their hand and say, we have to go a little bit deeper here, folks. We're gonna get pulled up out of that soil and jerked through a knot hole like you've never seen before. Everybody's gonna say, whatever happened to the past three generations we had? We'll go online, you'll see them there. They have plenty to say. And they're as anxious as they can possibly be. As the communicants come forward, we're gonna to come to the Lord's table. What table is that? Oh, man. The table on the night he was betrayed that they participated in a meal on one of the most confusing nights in history of civilization. So confusing that those nearest to him betrayed him time and time and time again. The very people this war they never would. Who were prodded by the world to think a certain way or do a certain thing. And the bandwidth wasn't within them to stand up to what was asked of them. And their love came into question three times, and rightly so. You love me, he says, because you obey me. You love me not because you say you love me. You love me because you obey me. You obey me because you love me. There is a correlation there. Christ holds all things together and fell apart so that he could in your life. He was broken, fractured. In every way possible, spirit, mind, and body. Forsaken even by his father. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, all of it. This is the cup of new covenant in my blood. I can clear your cluttered mind with it. I can clear your cluttered soul. I can clear you of every spot and blemish. I can take and make you pristine and holy without spot or blemish and I'll take my blood and give you the confidence to come right to the Father. Right to the Father. As clean as you may not know you are, you are by my blood. And you can come right to the Father. 
the Abba. Boldly, confidently. If there's anything we need, confidence. Confidence. The lack of confidence has brought us to the place where personal evangelism is the most endangered species on the face of the earth because we're afraid of the world. We're afraid. Call it like it is. We're afraid. Or we don't know what to do. But either way, the mind-racing, bewildered, and confused world needs for us to get our act together. Just like I needed that world when I came up to get their act together to share the gospel with me. Thank you, someone did. Thank you, someone did. Here's a meal that's for believers only. It's not for Herod's, not for outliers, it's not for hirelings, it's for believers. I believe, I believe, I believe. We'll eat then, drink, get fortified, get edified, get built up, get confident and be who you're called to be. There it is. Do we live in the information age? Or do we live in the age of revival? We'll see. Come humbly to this table and thank him. For you were made to come, bow down, and worship, no matter what the cost, at any time over whatever distance you were called to seek him out, bow down and worship him. That's where your peace is. Let's pray. Father, declutter, cleanse, fortify, renew, clear out our conscience that we leave here today lighter than we entered, cleaner than we entered, more confident than when we entered, and more of need of you, more desirous of you, more curious of you than we've ever been before through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll come to whatever station is most appropriate for where you're sitting. Come with reverence. Come and eat. Come and drink. Be forgiven. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. Amen.